guest today is Walter Murch, editor, writer, director, translator, poet, scientist, beekeeper. Really? Well, yes, thank you for all of those descriptions. <laughs> yeah, I uh, haven't finished. And, and Husband. Aggie is the beekeeper oh, now. Okay. I, I started out doing the bees, but she has now taken them right. over. Aggie is your wife, yeah, so wife. you're also a right. husband. For father. 50 years. We got married 50 years ago. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Grandfather, and recently the subject of a course studied at NYU. How cool is that? So, Walter, have I left anything out of the long list of your interests? And hobbies? Uh, not that I can think of at the moment. <laughs> okay. So, unlike Maria and the Sound of Music, let's not start at the very beginning. But from this moment of space-time, um, why are you in London, Walter? I'm editing a doc feature documentary on the CIA MI6 coup uh, in Iran in 1953 that erased democracy in that country and installed the monarchy-slash-dictatorship of the Shah in order to keep the oil flowing. The crime that the Democrats had uh, committed in Iran was that they nationalized the oil uh, and that meant that they had their hand on the tap at least as far as um, the Anglo-Iranian oil company was concerned which became BP um, and this the fear was that this would create chaos in the oil markets of the world. Iran at that time was the dominant supplier of oil to the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, Saudi Arabia had not come online yet with all of its oil. Anyway, uh, it's a very dramatic story. It's the first time the United States uh, had interfered so directly uh, in the politics of another country. It was the Cold War. It was one of the first uh, shots uh, of this kind of espionage, skullduggery in the Cold War. And it led to all kinds of other um, events because it was seen, at least in the short term, as being a huge success. And um, the next year, the CIA tried it again successfully in Guatemala um, and again, in quotes, succeeded. And the year after that, they tried it in Vietnam to depose Ho Chi Minh the way they had deposed Mossadegh in Iran and it didn't work. And so the question then is, what do you do? Uh, well, what they did was they doubled down and unfortunately we know the history of the next 20 years was uh, a, a gruesome uh, part of the 20th history of the 20th century. Anyway, the many things can be traced back to this event in 1953. So the film is about how it got to that point, what actually happened, who was involved, what the personalities were on both sides, and then what are the long-term ramifications of this. Uh, as far as Iran goes, it's, it's headline material in the newspapers almost every day with the nuclear um, negotiations that are going on. Yeah, well, fascinating and complex subject and quite ambitious, actually. Um, you're, you're well known for your your interest in a wide variety of fields. Is this your second documentary as an editor? 
Yes, the yeah. second feature. I, I began editing documentaries uh, when, as soon as I left film school, ah. but they were short, 20-minute, uh, mm-hmm. half-an-hour type films. Right. Um, but in terms of the long form of something that is approximately 100 minutes, 120 minutes, this is the second. I, I worked on Mark Levinson's Particle Fever two years ago, which was a explanation of... Uh, of what's going on at uh, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. And one of the things that did happen is that they discovered this very elusive particle which had been uh, being looked for for almost 50 years, the the so-called Higgs particle, otherwise known as the God particle. Anyway, that was a film that was shot over a six-year period, uh, beginning in 2007. Yes, that was, I I saw that um, documentary and it's absolutely fantastic. Actually, it won quite a lot of awards. It Um, did. uh, I just got back from Washington, D.C., where it won the Communication Award of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Fantastic. I can really recommend that film to anyone who's missed it because it's a, a, it's fascinating and it's science, but it's also a very human story because the all these six physicists is, is it six that you you follow six six or seven six depending. or seven yeah. yeah they they were also fascinating characters um, <clears throat> in themselves and quite a few of them were musicians and pianists and very you know. Um, uh, broad in their interests as well, like yes. you. <laughs> so um, that one you actually edited in uh, New York, New York mostly. Yeah. So have you always been interested in science? I think so. Um, I uh, no, not exclusively in science, mm-hmm. but certainly for the last many decades, my reading material of choice Mm -hmm. is books that popularize some aspect of science. Um, And uh, when I went to university, I went with the intention of becoming an oceanographer. Mm. And that sent me down the path of being a geologist. And uh, unfortunately, that that particular uh, relationship didn't take for some reason. I I think because at that time, this was in the early 60s, the plate tectonics had not yet been admitted. So the idea is that that, uh, continents would swirl around the surface of the earth was um, considered not the way things happened. Mm -hmm. Even though there was lots of evidence that something like this did happen, it was dismissed because nobody could think about the mechanism. How would it work? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the mid-60s that the actual um, uh, mechanics of this began to be revealed, which in a sense adds a story element to geology that, that without that, the, the history of geology is uh, a tiny bit more in the direction of stamp collecting. Right. <laughs> Identify this rock. Um, I'm exaggerating, but uh-huh. uh, I, I think had I started with geology and had plate tectonics been part of the 
equation, I might have stuck with it. Oh my but God, in, that'd be a loss to the film world. Well, Thank God you didn't. Well, I, so I jumped tracks uh, the second year at university. I thought, well, let me just take classes and on speculation for the first couple of weeks and find out who are the interesting teachers. Forget the subject matter, just what classes do I like to be in? And that's how I wound up in Romance Languages and History of Art. Right. Well, I really need to ask you this question because I know that this has been your interest for many years. What is Bode's Law? Bode's Law is a... uh, Today we would put the law in quotes. Mm. Um, But for perhaps 80 years, uh, it was a... Um, it was a mathematical formula, very simple. And if you plugged integers into that formula, out popped other numbers, and those numbers had an uncanny relationship with the relative distance of the planets from the sun. Mm. And it it was first promulgated uh, not by the uh, astronomer Johann Bode, for whom it's named, but another Johann, Titius, who was German. And um, at that time, it described all the planets that they knew, which was everything up to Saturn. And Saturn had been known by humanity forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least its discovery is lost in the mists of time. We, we don't have any record of somebody saying that's a planet. So as soon as people started writing, they knew about Saturn. And um, fortunately, within a decade or so, a new planet was discovered by another German, William Herschel. Up, he was a composer and organist at, in Bath. He was also the preeminent grinder of lenses in the world at that time. And um, using his fantastic telescopes one evening, he discovered what turned out to be the next planet out. Um, And he decided that he would name it George after King George III, the famous famous king. uh, Because if you named something after a king, maybe he would give you some money, uh, patronage, basically. Johann Bode... uh, who uh, knew Herschel, uh, basically said, why don't we stick with the plan here and keep naming them after gods of the ancient world? So since Uranus is the father of Saturn, who is the father of Jupiter, they decided, to the delight of seven-year-old boys everywhere, they decided to call it Uranus, or Uranus. Um, And... uh, the point, as far as Bode's Law was concerned, is that it fit the next iteration of the law. So that the law said there should be another planet here, and sure enough, that's where that planet turned out to be. And then the law, they, people started taking the law with a great deal of seriousness at this point, and there was a blank spot uh, in the law between Mars and Jupiter. So they started looking at that distance and 
Within a few years, they discovered that that's where the center of the asteroid belt is, where the, what the planet or planetoid that we now call Ceres is exactly at that distance. So this is kind of the holy grail of science, that you have a formula that is both descriptive of what we know and predictive of future events. Mm -hmm. And so it was around that point that people started calling it a law because there was no known exception to it. And it coasted along on its reputation for about 40 years until the next planet out was discovered, which was Neptune. Uh, and unfortunately, that did not fit the law. And so the knives came out and it was uh, stabbed to death in public, Bode's Law and it, it began a long slide into obscurity from which I'm trying to rescue it. It, it had become so uh, tarnished and obscure by 1930 that when Pluto was discovered, the next planet out, um, nobody mentioned that in fact it fit Bode's law uh, exactly. Um, or within, uh, all of these exactnesses are within one or two percent. Mm -hmm. But um, so I, I discovered this law in reading a book by Arthur Kessler about 20 years ago um, called The Sleepwalkers, which was a history of mankind's evolving sense of the universe mm -hmm. from ancient Greece up to uh, Newton. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, in, in a... Um, footnote, he mentioned Bode's Law and gave a thumbnail description of it and something about it uh, awakened my interest in it and that began a, a long uh, wanderings through the history of astronomy and present day astronomy. The, the big advantage that we have now compared to the situation 150, 170 years ago is that we have a huge amount more data because of things like the Hubble telescope and the Voyager spacecraft and uh, the Huygens spacecraft and, and now the Kepler telescope. And we know about exoplanets and uh, we know in great detail the orbits of the moons around our big planets. And I discovered that, in fact, if you study the moon systems of uh, Jupiter, uh, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, that there are moons in those systems that also obey this formula. Ah, so Neptune does obey the law after all. Well, Neptune itself doesn't obey, but right. its, its moons, its moons. Uh, obey them. Ah, so right. it seemed to be, to me, to be something that was very interesting, and it was more a general um, tendency mm. um, in all orbital systems, whether we're talking about the um, solar system or the lunar systems of the big planets. And there is a star uh, not too far away from us in this galaxy that has three planets that are in the exact ratio of Earth, Mars, and Ceres, which also fit Bode's mm -hmm. law. And there's recently been um, a certain amount of activity uh, in uh, astro astronomical circles of people applying Bode's Law 
to all of these exoplanet systems. And they're coming up with um, a, a very high degree of uh, alignment. I was astonished to discover after digging in this particular field for uh, a number of months that those ratios are also musical ratios. Mm -hmm. So that if you compare the distance ratio of Mercury, the average distance of Mercury, to the average distance of Venus, to the average distance of Earth, to Mars, to Ceres, you come up with a musical chord, which is B flat, uh, no, C, B flat, E, C, B flat, which we call the seventh chord. And it, it goes on uh, extending outward to the other planets as well. So this ancient dream of Pythagoras that there is some relationship between orbital systems and music, the music of the spheres was what he called it. Um, it there could be some uh, value to that. Yeah. Anyway, this is I've been hammering away at this for the last couple of decades in between working on films. Yeah, recently there have been a fascinating book by Max Tegmark called uh, Our Mathematical Universe. So. Do you think mathematics is something inherent uh, in the universe, you know, like the proverbial sculpture to be discovered within the block of marble? Or do you think it's something that us humans have dreamt out to interpret uh, the universe in some way, or our universe, right. I should say? It, it's a big uh, ongoing discussion. Mm -hmm. um, I side with the Platonists. Uh, who would say that it is a fundamental aspect of the universe, perhaps the fundamental aspect. Mm -hmm. And I, I read Max's book um, about maybe six months ago and uh, agree with a lot of it. Um, there's the famous uh, line from Galileo who said, the, the book of mathematics is written in the language of, the, the book of the universe is written in the, in the language of mathematics. And that to understand the universe, you have to know that language. And um, there's, a, there's another great line from uh, Leibniz, the co-discoverer of calculus, who said, the pleasure we get from music is the pleasure we get from counting without realizing that we're counting. <laughs> so so uh, I, just time after time, we humans investigate some very abstract, uh, uh, remote isthmus of mathematics that has, seems to have no relevance to anything. Mm. And then a generation later, we make some observational discovery about the universe that actually links that observation with this uh, branch of mathematics that people thought we were pursuing simply out of, uh, uh, you know, pure curiosity but but over and over there is a practical aspect to even the most abstract of mathematics it's so satisfying when that happens i bet for theoretical physicists and mathematicians um so in that sense i guess it's not um it's not surprising that uh 
a lot of new physics is also related to music. Well, string theory is literally um, finding analogies in music, and we all know how difficult Bach is to play. <laughs> so um, this leads me actually to my first, um, what I call an aspect question to you, um, which is to ask you to uh, see if you can describe yourself in something other than in human terms. Um, if you were an art form, Walter, what do you think you would be? Mm. You mean, like, would you be? A, would I be a sculpture? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that kind of thing? Yeah. Hmm. I, hmm, interesting. Probably music. Music. Uh, although music is a castle with many, many rooms mm -hmm. in it, but uh, I gravitate towards European classical music. Bach. Um, um, Is Bach your favorite? Uh, one of the big favorites, mm -hmm. Beethoven. I mean, I, I, I like, I'm, I'm very uh, mainstream when it comes to um, my, my liking of uh, classical music. I, I begin to spin my wheels a little bit uh, with uh, music in the 20th century, much beyond Prokofiev and um, uh, that school of Russian and European music uh, that really reached a peak sometime in the 1920s. After, after that, I feel something happened. I don't quite know what. Um, Twelve Tone took over or something. Right. Um, Although I think I read somewhere that music concrete had a big influence on you. Yes, this um, uh, it, the, the the practitioners of musique concrète, which was a is a school of music started in France in the late 1940s. They were thrilled to discover the the flexibility and ease of recording ordinary sounds with uh, on tape recorders, which really just began to be available in the late 1940s. And then they discovered that you could multi-track these tapes so that you could have a sound superimposed alongside another sound and another sound. And basically that you could orchestrate the sounds of our world the way you orchestrate groups of instruments in a symphony. And thus was born Musique Concrète. I, I heard my first piece of music concrete when I was maybe 12 or 13 on the radio in New York where I was growing up and I had already become interested in the tape recorder and that hearing that use of uh, music made out of ordinary sounds really sealed the deal for me and uh, in retrospect ultimately was one of the things that sent my particular boat down the branch of the river that it went down, uh, working in film and film sound, which basically is is an extension of musique concrète. Mm. In fact, uh, you one of your earliest projects was as sound editor, working with Francis Ford Coppola and uh, George Lucas, etc. So, how do you think our eyes and ears work together when watching a film? And can you give us an example of how you manipulate? the audience's senses to achieve the desired effect. Sure. It's um, the, the paradox of sound and vision 
is that we are primarily visual creatures. Mm -hmm. I think a third of the brain is dedicated to processing and analyzing the information uh, that we see and making sense of it. Um, but we see only a very narrow band of information. Uh, if you compare blue light to red light, there's scarcely an octave of difference between them. Blue light is, uh, I, I forget exactly, 700 nanometers and red light is 400. So in, in musical terms, this is a very small thing. But we do a tremendous amount with it, with our brains. We attack this octave with fantastic uh, analysis. But there's whole ranges of light, basically, that we cannot see. Ultraviolet light, uh, uh, infrared light, um, X-rays, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum of which light is a small part extends hugely, huge distances on either side. Whereas sound, um, not only is sound, can we hear 10 octaves of sound, so we can hear 10 times what we can see, but we dedicate very little of our brain to analyzing sound in comparison with sight. To add to the paradox, we, when we are conceived, we start hearing the world four and a half months after conception, and the womb is a very noisy place, both from internal sounds and external sounds. Um, the, that environment is very, very rich sonically, but at that point, sound is really the only one of the five senses that is active. You can't see anything, really. Uh, you can't smell anything. You can touch, you can touch, but it's all kind of slippery and doesn't have much texture to it. And maybe you can taste what your mother had. Uh, oh, she had pizza last night. But it's, it's a different kind than we experience later. Um, but sound is just as rich uh, an environment, if not more so, because it's 24-7. The, 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 there is no time that the child ever experiences silence. So the emergence, the emergence of consciousness is midwifed by sound. When you're born, these other senses flip on. You, you see the world, you smell the world, you touch the world, you taste the world, and you hear the world, and you start to relate sight and sound. That thing that you heard, now I hear that sound when this person's lips move, my mother, so there is, you, you understand causality and you begin to understand space. When she's far away, she sounds different than when she's close up. Uh, and you begin to come to terms with the absence of sound and what that means. It, initially, it must be very threatening because you've never heard anything like it before. And so in the middle of the night, if you wake up and it's dark like it was in the womb and it's quiet, you think, <laughs> and sure enough, your parents come in and start to jiggle you around and that relieves you. And uh, then you get back into that whole cycle again. So in working with film we, and film sound, we have to admit that when people look at a film, they see it more than they hear it. It doesn't mean the hearing is not having an effect on them, but they either are unaware of that effect or they ascribe the effect to something that they see. 
there's a kind of um, sound vision is so powerful and so much of our brain is visual that it's rare that we think about the sound that we are hearing which on the one hand is sad because you know we're anonymous people working in the background here doing all this work and but on the other hand it's great because it gives us a degree of freedom that we would not otherwise have mm-hmm. because in a sense nobody can see the marionette strings that we keep pulling mm-hmm. so um an, an example out of many, many, many uh, would be uh, the, the first benign sound that you hear in the English patient, uh, other than music, um, but the first nice sound effect that you hear is the sound that accompanies the patient when he eats the plum that Hannah has picked for him. All of the sounds up to that point have been of engines and planes crashing and um, you know artillery going off and other kinds of warfare because it takes place during World War II. Now in the monastery it's quiet but then at the moment that he uh, tastes the plum and, and there's this lovely close-up of him his lips biting into the teeth, uh, lips and teeth biting into the plum, way in the distance we hear the bell of a, another monastery somewhere else in this Italian landscape. And we're getting at what we hope is a kind of synesthesia because we cannot taste anything in film. Film is restricted to two senses, but if we can as artfully as possible, combine sight and sound in the right time, we create a synthesis that in a strange way is interpreted by the brain as taste. So um, that moment, which is a luscious moment, both visually and sonically, is also accompanied by an experience that we have all had, which is what does a plum taste like? And the, that distant bell is uh, encouraging us to remember our own experience of that taste. It would be very different if next to the monastery there was a battle going on mm-hmm. and he was eating the plum while you heard these grinding mechanical sounds of destruction. So it works very directly with uh, an audience's subconscious mind, in fact. More than visuals, do you think? Yes, I, I think, uh, I mean, it, it's not accidental uh, that our eyes face forward mm-hmm. and our ears are on the side of our head. So we confront the world directly, visually. We, we interrogate the world um, like a po- police inspectors. What are you up to? What's going on? What's happening? Whereas sound is, uh, comes sneaks, can sneak in through the side door, so to speak, and we hear the world in 360 spherical degrees, and, but we see the world in a much more restricted form. Of course, you worked on the conversation also directed by Coppola, which was a film where sound actually is like the, the, one of the main characters of the movie. Um, you also won your first Academy Award for Apocalypse 
now as sound designer. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference in your approach to each film? Because they're very, very different soundscapes. Yes, uh, Conversation is a chamber piece um, in musical terms, and Apocalypse Now is a, um, a symphony. Um, with everything that that means, um, and uh, you you musically would approach each of these things very differently. The other aspect of a conversation is that the human being at the center of this film, played by Gene Hackman, the character's name is Harry Cole, um, is a sound recordist, and the film is told exclusively from his point of view, meaning every shot either he is in frame or it is something that he is seeing. We never have a scene in that film where two other characters go off somewhere else and discuss something. Um, either discuss Harry, what's up with Harry Call, or some aspect of the plot. So all of the information is filtered through this character and because he is a sound recordist and he confronts the world acoustically, we naturally tend to identify with him, even though he's kind of an unpleasant character. He's definitely not the kind of person that you want to have a beer with. Um, but there's no alternative, which is one of the secrets of films with a single point of view. It's the same strategy that Anthony used in Talented Mr. Ripley. And again, Tom is a kind of an unpleasant person uh, on a certain aspect. He's a murderer. Um, and um, not the usual hero of a film. And so one of the ways that you co-opt an audience into sticking with that kind of a character is to tell it from an exclusively single point of view. So Harry hears the world and we start to hear the world and the sounds are all fairly subtle. It, it was a great opportunity in that film to explore the the meaning, for want of a better word, of uh, reverberation, how sounds have a different quality when you are close to them and when you're far away. So my voice sounds very different now. And when I talk like this, it's also very different because the proportion of direct to reflected sound is has shifted. And um, there's much in that film that has to do with sounds coming through walls or sounds that are coming th through electronic devices uh, or distant sounds as opposed to close sounds. The other uh, thing that works to the advantage of that film is that at about the halfway point people stop talking. At the halfway point it basically as far as dialogue goes becomes a silent film. Yes words are said but they're said more in exclamation than in terms of, rather than in terms of dialogue. What are you doing? Or no, or you can't, those kind of things. So under those circumstances, the audience's mind is let off its leash in a sense. Dialogue holds the audience's mind on a, on a tight leash because that's how we're mainly getting our our logical information. And when you don't have dialogue, you look for meaning from other sources. And so you look for it in clearly in vi the visual composition, but you also 
start mining the soundtrack for what does the sound mean? And um, the, the presence of dialogue in a film is, has an effect on the whole soundtrack, very similar to the presence of the full moon on the star field. That on an, on an evening when the moon is full, you don't see many stars. They're there, but you just you don't really focus on them. When the moon is not there, you can suddenly see more stars. And so when in a film, when dialogue stops, then you, you, the audience, start to pay attention to these little stars, which are the sound effects. And if we, the filmmakers, have done our work and invested each of these with some kind of meaning, um, then you, the audience can begin to extract meaning out of this stuff in a more conscious way than they can under normal circumstances. So that's the conversation in a, in a nutshell. Uh, Apocalypse Now was an extravaganza. Um, it uh, was the first film ever uh, to have the soundtrack as a what we now call a 5.1 soundtrack. Back then we just called it six track but that allowed us to steer the sound in 360 degrees around the theater. And also it had another track that allowed us to move the sound down in frequency into the infrasonic range, meaning at a point where you no longer hear the sound, but you feel it in your stomach cavity, so to speak. You, you begin to vibrate at these very low frequencies, 15 cycles per second. Um, hearing basically stop begins to stop around 25 cycles. So if you go below that, um, you basically, and we were able to go another octave below that, you, uh, you can have effects on people that are very compelling. And it was about the Vietnam War, um, which was the first war really conducted um, by helicopter. Helicopters had been used in Korea, but not to the extent uh, that they were used in Vietnam. The, the helicopters basically replaced the cavalry. And in fact, the unit, Robert Duval's unit, he plays Colonel Kilgore, his unit is Air Cav, Air Cavalry. So they're seen as horses of the sky. Hence your choice in music, as right. most famously. The, the Valkyries. Uh, the Valkyries, yeah. right, the Valkyries. Um, so Which is terrifying somehow. It, it is terrifying. It was intended as a, uh, when the tape is put on, Duval, again, Mr. K uh, Colonel Kilgore says, put on Psy War Op, meaning psychological war operations. So this music is designed to terrify the people on the ground. Mm. And music has been used that way ever since uh, the invention of musical instruments. Uh, the bugle uh, going into war um, is all, has a long, long distinguished history in warfare. Um, so this is really an extension of, of that. So I, I remember Francis's brief to me on that film was, uh, he had three things to say. He said, I, I want the sound to be able to surround the audience mm -hmm. at times, not always, but to be able to do that. I want it to go into this felt sound area. I want it to be accurate, meaning those weapons need to be the real weapons, which you're not 
necessarily obliged to do in film. Um, you can have a gun, you can have a pistol fire, and you can actually put a rifle sound over that, and most of the audience will will buy it. Um, but he wanted it to be accurate to the degree that it needed to be accurate. And then he wanted it to get progressively stranger as the film went on. And we used, uh, right around the middle of the film, there's a scene at night at a bridge. And when you first see that scene, you're hearing the weapons accurately reflected. And then as the scene gets more and more nightmarish, the weapons are replaced by other sounds so that machine guns become rivet guns and um, uh, flamethrower, flamethrowers become arc welders and other sounds of construction so that we're bending the sound psychologically, again, psychological, psych, ops. Um, and that's really the beginning of the, the strangeness of, of the film really starts at that point. Mm, it does sound like editing is a, a very musical uh, activity. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So w what is the rule of six? Uh, rule of six is uh, for picture editing is my attempt and it's, it's relatively crude because really it should be the rule of 60 or 6,000, but then that becomes impossible to sort of keep track of. But it's, a, it's an observation of um, when we put a film together, we are making cuts from one shot to another. And the question is, where do you make the cut? And a film can easily have 2,000 of those in it, a feature film. So you have to make 2,000 decisions. And of course, you make many more decisions than that. It's just that's what you wind up with in the end. You probably make 20 times those decisions in trying to find, the, the you know, to, to arrive through various drafts at the final version of the film. But um, what are the criteria that an editor or filmmaker should consider when considering these, this leap uh, from one shot to another, which is a very improbable thing. Why does it work? We don't really know why it works, but it does. Um, and so the, uh, at the top of the list, I put emotion, uh, which is really very hard to describe um, and very hard to tame. It's uh, and very hard to trap. Getting the right emotion in a film is like catching lightning in a bottle. How it happens and what it depends on is, is sometimes very accidental and tangential and mysterious. The, uh, just a tiny look in somebody's eye, a little flint of light in an eye can unleash a whole torrent of emotions. Um, anyway, is at the moment of that cut and the transition from one shot to another, you feel some way, is that feeling in the right direction for the film at that moment? Yes or maybe or no. Uh, the next right below that is the decision of does this help to tell the story? Are we learning something by this new shot that helps us understand what's happening and people's motivations for it. And uh, right below that, 
is the rhythm? Does it happen at a moment that is musically right? Uh, now I'm talking in terms of visual music, but every shot has an inner architecture to it that will predetermine almost where those cut points are, just like a branch of a tree will have an internal rhythm in its DNA that will determine where twigs branch off from it. A new shot is like a twig branching off of an existing branch, and that's only possible at certain intervals for every tree. And in a film, similarly, you, you can mechanically make a cut wherever you want, or once every 24 or 25 or 30 frames, depending on what system you're using. But uh, artistically, the choices are much more limited. So in that sense, it's like a rhythm, that, that the moment of the cut is like the entrance of a new instrument in a, in a piece of music, where the oboe comes in. It can come in too early or too late. It can be playing the right note, but it feels wrong if it comes in too early or too late. And those three, emotion, story, and rhythm, are very tightly linked. They're, they're almost like the, the three forces in physics of um, you know, gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong nuclear force. They're basic things. Um, you can separate them out, uh, but it's, it's tough to do it. And you can only do so under certain circumstances, like in physics. Um, you know, can you, can you make an audience feel a certain way and yet they are confused about the story? Yes, you can do that. It's risky. If you do that too long, you begin to alienate them. So, but a certain amount of um, gravitationless uh, floating is actually good. Uh, it's like a leap uh, and people enjoy that. Below that, there are three other c categories which have to do with slightly more mechanical aspects, uh, which are um, the, what, mm, there's no official word for it, I call it eye trace, which is where is the audience looking at any moment? And at any moment, they are looking somewhere in the frame, and you can divide up the frame into perhaps nine quadrants upper left, upper middle, upper right, uh, middle, 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 you know, those kind of things. And uh, it's generally a good idea at the, to predict where the audience is looking at the moment you're making the cut, and then to supply something of interest at that point in, in the incoming shot so that their attention is not betrayed at the moment of the cut. In a sense, you're carrying around their uh, attention like a a, a cup uh, that you don't want to spill. On the other hand, sometimes you do want to spill it, uh, particularly in fight scenes or love scenes or scenes that are uh, um, aggressive, then you do want to abuse this. So we're beginning to see, well, we can let go of this, uh, this eye trace. Sometimes we do it, well, sometimes not. But it's a general thing to know, at least know that that exists. Then there is the observation of the, the problems related to three-dimensional, of three-dimensionality transposed to two dimensions, which are the, um, the thumbnail description of this in film studies is the 180 degree rule. 
which we try to observe when people are having a dialogue scene with each other. Does it look like they're looking at each other when we cut from one shot to another? Uh, basically, if you draw a line coming out of their eyes, like an arrow, and then imagine that line in one shot, and then imagine that line in the next shot, and now imagine, do those two lines intersect each other? Then you will believe that they are looking at each other. Even Finally, though, I understand. Right, there it is. <laughs> I wanted to know it's, the it, secret of it's that Basically, for years. it's extremely simple. Mm -hmm. Just imagine a laser beam coming out of their eyes, and then imagine the laser beam coming out of the eyes of the other person. Do they cross each other? Then it will work. Right. On the other hand, sometimes we want to not use that. And films will work without this. Uh, documentaries particularly let go of this frequently, just because of the nature of how documentaries are shot. That, that is an, a law that is observed in the breach most of the time. And I, in particular, I let go of it frequently when I'm uh, working on a love scene. And at a certain moment where the intensity of the love scene crosses a threshold, then I think it's good to disabuse these laser beams mm -hmm. uh, because it puts the audience, in a sense, it puts the audience in the middle of this experience. If, if you maintain this law uh, too long, then the audience becomes a voyeur, and that's not something you necessarily want in a love scene. Same thing for fight scenes. You frequently can cross the line in a fight scene, and it will work. And then the last of these six is... Uh, observing the three-dimensional space in which the people exist. If uh, under con very conventional editing, the person gets up from a chair and crosses the room and you cut to the wide shot and the person is in the same place in the room and you pick up the action in a different shot, but the person, the person's trail of breadcrumbs, so to speak, is continuous as they move. Um, this is now almost always l let go of. Um, for many years, the 30s and the 40s and into the 50s, it was a rule that we generally followed. And then thanks to Godard uh, and other uh, uh, film-making revolutionaries, we began to say, well, we don't have to do that. The, the eye trace is as good as following... Um, the, the implied movement in three-dimensional space. So if somebody gets out of a car and the door of the car opens and we cut to the door of their apartment opening in the same movement and the person, so basically the person gets out of the car and as they're getting out of the car, they go into their apartment, which on the one hand is impossible in real life. You can't do that. And from filmmaking aspects, it was forbidden in the 30s. Uh, you just didn't do that uh, because you would confuse the audience. Uh, it was believed. And then starting in the 60s, we began to let go of that. And now we, we, do, we do that kind of editing all the time. Mm -hmm. So here we are. It, it, we're making a cut. And in some ideal world, which is not necessarily the best world, but in some ideal world, all six of those things are observed. It's emotionally powerful, it helps the story move forward, it happens at the right moment, the eye trace uh, is taken into consideration, the 180 degree rule is observed, and 
the person is not jumping around in space, fine. More frequently, an editor is presented with problems where you can't do all of those six. So what do you do? My suggestion really is to start chipping away at this list from the bottom up. So the first thing to let go of is the three-dimensional space. If you can achieve emotion, story, da-da-da-da-da, and you have to let go of three... Go ahead, do it. Okay, I can't... I, even now I can't do it. All right, then let go of the 180-degree rule. Okay, no, it still doesn't work. Okay, then let go of eye trace. Okay, now it works. Then fine, that's fine. If, if you make a cut that has the right emotion, that tells the story and happens at the right rhythm, the audience will forgive you the fact that you have broken those three lower rules. You, you get into, as we said earlier, you get into moments where ooh, can we make a cut that is rhythmically wrong, you know, but it's the right emotion and the right story for some reason? Yes, then you should do that. Don't do that as a general principle because that's, uh, that will eat away at people's confidence in you. But if you have to do it occasionally, then do that. And then last and most more difficult is something that uh, makes the audience confused about what's happening, but inexplicably gives them the right emotion, then definitely you should do that. But don't stay in that world too long. Try to come back to earth as soon as possible and start telling the story and at the right rhythm. And then as many of those other things as you can get in, depending on the style of the film. That's fantastic. In fact, you've answered what was going to be my next question, because I remember you once said continuity is for whims. <laughs> By that, I mean exactly what you just said, is that emotion is more important than a kind of technical accuracy or any of those yeah. other things. I mean, I, you know, we say these things, continuity is for wimps. Uh, it's really a method of self-defense because we're, we're nervous about breaking continuity right. uh, because it can be misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. But under, the, under, under duress in the right moments, you do have to not worry about continuity. It, particularly if you can predict where the audience is looking. And in that case, editing is very much like a magic act. If, if we depended on everything to match, we could not make films. In fact, mismatching is happening all the time. What we're doing when we edit is predicting where the audience is looking and making sure that in that quadrant of the frame, it does match, whatever that means, and that the mismatches are happening somewhere else over here, just like the magician who is pocketing the quarter while he makes you look at the handkerchief. So, so it seems to me that when you want Ideally, the audience should not notice the cut, and if they notice a cut, it's because you choose for them to notice it. A little bit like a music score, actually. Yes. Sometimes you, you, you like a score that it's subliminally supporting right. the story, and you don't right. notice, and sometimes you want people to notice. Right. There's the, a, there's a wonderful uh, chapter heading in a book I was reading a number of years ago about translation, language translation. And the chapter was called, Is My Invisibility Showing? <laughs> That's right. uh, which is a problem for translators. That mm -hmm. Yes, in general, when you're translating from Chinese into English, you want that translation to be invisible. On the other hand, maybe not all the time. Maybe sometimes you want the voice of the translator to be felt. Um, 
And similarly for editing, most of the time, yes, we just want the audience to experience the film uh, as if it's an authentic dreamed experience. But then there are moments where we want to put the thing that's happening right in the face of the audience just for its own effect. The, the, the transition in the famous transition in Lawrence of Arabia from the uh, lighting of the match to the rising sun is a good, or the, it, it's, yes, uh, uh, or is it the blowing out of a match? No, I can't remember. I can't hear that. I, th- I think it's the lighting of a match. The audience will correct me in either direction, but a very dramatic shot of a match close up and then the sun. Um, and this is confronting the audience with film as an artifact at that moment. And that could be really exciting too. Yeah. yeah. I- once visited your editing rooms, Walter, and uh, you're clearly super organized and uh, have a great attention to detail. But you also famously edit standing up, which leads me to think that for you it's a, a kind of physical activity. And a part of editing is also very intuitive for you. So how does this conscious and subconscious minds work together when you're, when you're approaching your material? They're always dancing with each other and uh, in a sense I I am very organized at a certain point in the process. I take notes, I take pictures of of every shot, Uh, I I capture frames and put them up on the wall. Um, But I do that in order to get lost, in order to be able to let go of these things. In a sense it's like uh, they are the map of this jungle that I'm exploring. Um, and I, if I know I have the map in my back pocket, I can afford to go off the trail. Because if I do get lost, then I can find my way back. Like a dancer learning choreography in order yeah. to forget it. And yeah, exactly. Do the dance. And, and film editing is very much like dancing, uh, I think. It's, it's, that's another reason that I stand, is that the kinesthetics of the rhythms that you're trying to inhabit are felt more fully by the whole body when you're standing than when you're sitting. When you're sitting, effectively, you've become a paraplegic. Uh, you, you have amputated the lower part of your body. And uh, I, I think film editing is also, as much as it's like dancing in a sense, it's also like cooking and it's like brain surgery and it's like orchestra conducting and all of those people, dancers, surgeons, cooks, and um, uh, conductors all stand to do what they do because time is extremely important in all of those things. You have to monitor the time in which you're doing something. And so when, you, when time is important, people tend to stand. Uh, time is not so important when you're writing. You can write a thousand words in a morning, but you know, so people in general tend to sit when they when they write. Many exceptions to that. Ernest Hemingway stood. Uh, Thomas Wolfe really? stood um, uh, when they wrote. And um, but um, I, I think things that don't have such an intimate relationship to time as cooking, film editing, orchestra conducting, surgery, um, those are. Um, Generally, people will tend to sit for those things. That was-
was the first part of my conversation with Walter Merge, and part two is coming up. Meanwhile, this is Wendy Wu signing off. Thank you.